0: Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in south-central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. For today's show, we have The Hidden Curse of Natural Resources, Economic Impacts at Home and Abroad, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. This talk and discussion features Dr. Alexander James, a professor of economics at the University of Alaska Anchorage. His presentation focuses on what is sometimes called the paradox of plenty, and how resource-rich countries can often suffer from slow economic growth and other negative effects. The event was moderated by Larry Pursley and was recorded on January 24th at 49th State Brewing Company. We begin with David Ramser, chair of the board of directors for the Alaska World Affairs Council.
1: Uh, Good evening everybody, it looks like we're in store for another compelling World Affairs Council program tonight. Our presentation is from a relatively new to Alaska UAA economist with an intriguing and controversial message, especially for Alaska, that resource development may not be all it's cranked up to be. Alexander James joined the UAA faculty in 2014 with a doctorate in economics from the University of Wyoming. He grew up in rural uh, Northern California and studied resource economics at Oxford. And when he arrived here, some of his colleagues advised him to tone down his message that instead of the oil era being a good thing for Alaska, it may have made us poorer or at least no better off. But he's got the research to support it. And we've asked one of Alaska's better informed and none too shy thinkers about oil and gas to hold Professor James' feet to the fire. Like me, Larry personally began his career in newspapers as a reporter, editor, and newspaper owner. And then like me, he went to the dark side, working in state, municipal, and federal jobs focused on oil and gas issues, fiscal uh, matters, and the state budget. But unlike me, he enjoys a stellar reputation for his insights and his knowledge. So tonight's discussion couldn't be more timely with the new governor's state of the state address just two nights ago and the startup of a new legislature as Alaska faces enormous fiscal challenges. So please help me welcome to the Alaska World Affairs Council stage, UAA economics professor Alexander James and Larry Persley.
2: Thank you. The format is, um, Alexander's going to give a presentation, then afterwards I've got some questions ready and we'll take questions from the audience. Just one thing to keep in mind, his presentation tonight is on the resource curse. That's curse as a noun, not as a verb. So as you think about this and your reaction to his comments, just keep that in mind.
3: Thank you. All right, Ty. um, so I, uh, I made a terrible mistake uh, before coming here tonight. Uh, I was on Facebook the other day, and I saw an advertisement for this event, and I made the stupid mistake of looking at the comments associated with it. Uh Yeah, yeah. So so I appreciate the fact that a lot of people have a wide variety of opinions and ideas, and I commend you for, for coming tonight. Thank you for coming tonight and, and keeping an open mind about, about some of this stuff. Uh Let's see. Um, so, so I have about 15 minutes, 16 or 17 if I push it, um, to catch you guys all up to speed on about 30 years of research on the so-called curse of natural resources. Um, okay, so what is a resource curse? The idea of a resource curse is that the discovery of, the extraction of, the production of a natural resource can actually make economies poorer uh, and worse off then they would have been in the absence of that extraction or production. So it's not just that the natural resource wealth is wasted or, or that there's no effect. It's that economies are actually worse off because of the extraction. Uh, now, the other thing I want to point out here at the beginning is that this is not just a you know an academic question that's debated on campuses. Uh, this is a question and an idea that's debated by, yes, academics, but the general public, but also policymakers regionally, locally, nationally, internationally. So it's a big, big idea that, that's really important. Uh, now, it's a perplexing idea, right? So if you think about, you know, in Econ 101, we teach our students that natural resources are a form of capital, like physical capital or human capital, education, you know. Uh, even if you don't use the natural resources in the production process, you can export the natural resources and use the proceeds to invest in schooling and, and healthcare care and infrastructure development, and these things should fuel long-run growth and development. And yet, if we look around the world, anecdotal examples abound of places that are very dependent upon natural resources and yet suffer from a variety of, of bad economic and political outcomes, right? So uh, South America, Venezuela, a bunch of examples – in, uh, in Africa, Algeria, Nigeria, um, the, the, the DRC, the Republic of the Congo, um, Asia, Southeast Asia, Papua New Guinea. These places are very dependent upon natural resources, I meaning I mean, a large percentage of the stuff they produce is a primary product. Um, these places are, are not just poor, resource-dependent countries suffer from lower levels of education attainment. Right? Um, worse health outcomes, lower life expectancy, increased uh, infant mortality. Uh, most notably, these resource-dependent economies grow slowly. So this figure is taken from a seminal uh, uh, paper on the resource curse written by Jeffrey Sachs and Andrew Warner. And I think it might be, some people in the back might not be able to see this, but this horizontal axis is resource dependence, the, the, the percentage of total production in a country – Uh, That's a primary product in 1970. And then on the vertical axis is per capita income growth from 1970 to 1990. And so clearly there's a negative relationship here. The economies that the countries that were most dependent upon natural resources in 1970 not only grew more slowly than those economies that were less dependent upon natural resources, but they grew at a negative rate. This number here is negative two right here. So... Liberia, Saudi Arabia, Zambia, Zambia, they were growing at maybe a negative 2% average annual rate from 1970 to 1990, which means every year they were consuming 2% less stuff, right? So why, why might this happen? There's a bunch of theories that have been proposed. The most notable and famous one, I think, is something called the Dutch disease, Without getting into too much detail, the Dutch disease works when the extraction of a natural resource shrinks the size of other sectors in an economy. So it shrinks the size of, say, in particular, manufacturing. right? So it's named after the experience in the Netherlands when natural gas was discovered in the, the uh, northern part of the country in the uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s. And this line here, this is manufacturing employment over time. And that red line marks the date at which natural gas started to be produced in the Netherlands. And what we see is that employment and manufacturing was trending upwards Then natural gas started to be produced, and employment and manufacturing, was, the, the trend was permanently shifted negative. However, we see the same trend... For the UK, we see the same trend. For Germany, we see the same trend. For Belgium, and for France, and the list goes on. And the reason I bring all of this up is because I think that this, you know, mixed evidence or weak evidence of a Dutch disease is emblematic of a lot of the resource curse literature. That that actually a lot of the purported evidence uh, fails under uh, you know um, uh, more scrutiny. So another theory is that natural resource-dependent economies suffer from volatility. Volatility is bad for growth. Resource-dependent economies are more volatile. There you have it. Um, In a key examination of the effect of volatility on economic growth, resource-induced volatility, Vanderpulg and Pollock conclude that our key message is us that volatility is a quintessential feature of the resource curve. So volatility might be playing... A really key important role here. Political corruption, right? So beyond economic effects, uh, there's a variety of, of really interesting ideas and theories that explain why the production or dependence upon natural resources might cause governments to be corrupt. And corruption has, a, uh, you know, is linked with a, with a whole load of, of bad economic outcomes, including slow growth. Um, violence and conflict, um, you know, there's reasons I think natural resources can both cause conflict to to occur and also uh, increase the length at which conflict lasts. So this is a story, you know, most notably, I think, in Sierra Leone. Uh, um, there's a movie about it with Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Jennifer Conley. It's a pretty good movie. Uh, but the movie's about diamonds in Sierra Leone, right, and the role that diamonds played in, in, the, in the Civil War there. Uh, ISIS was na- recently named by Forbes magazine as the, the top 10 richest terrorist organization in the world. Part, part of their wealth comes from the fact that they control oil fields and they sell the oil to fund their operations. Uh, Coca price shocks has been linked to violence in Colombia. Uh, the shale boom in the lower 48 has been leaked to, linked to uh, a variety of, uh, of violence and criminal activity in the lower 48. Natural resources have even been linked to a variety of bad education outcomes. So it's both supply side and demand side effects, right? So if for whatever reason, and we can talk about um, maybe in more detail later on why this might be the case, but if people decide not to go to school when they live in a resource-rich economy, well, there's going to be long-run problems for for growth there. Uh, Now, I'm actually, this is going to surprise a lot of you, I'm actually a skeptic of, of the resource curse. Right, So I actually think that, that each one of these potential explanations here um, have existed before, and they will exist again in the future. But the qu- key question is, is, what happens on average? So on average, when a resource is extracted or discovered, should we expect conflict to break out? Should we expect bad education outcomes to ensue? And I actually think not, ironically, because... The purported evidence for a resource curse is so robust, right? So it's not just that countries dependent upon natural resources grow slowly. Even U.S. states dependent upon natural resources grow slowly, and U.S. counties that are dependent upon natural resources grow slowly. And 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 civil war didn't break out in North Dakota when when we started fracking down there, right? So there's something else going on, perhaps. And I actually think that. Um, that a lot of the purported evidence of a resource curse is due to a statistical artifact. It's misinterpretation of results. So, what explains the inverse relationship, the negative relationship between resource dependence and economic growth? I actually think it's something called the resource drag. And a resource drag exists when, you know, suppose that there's an economy humming along according to this green line, and then they discover an exhaustible natural resource like oil. And we start extracting the oil out of the ground will income levels rise but then we start to run out and income levels start to return to where they would have been had that resource never been discovered right so if you agree to give me a million dollars next year and then the year after that you give me 900,000 and then 800,000 and 700,000 I will experience significant negative growth in income but I would be okay if anybody wants to do that I, I would prefer that right and so the point here is that what matters what's key is income levels, not income growth, and a resource discovery can simultaneously create higher income levels and also slow growth.
0: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's show is The Hidden Curse of Natural Resources, Economic Impacts at Home and Abroad, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. The featured speaker is Dr. Alexander James, Professor of Economics at the University of Alaska Anchorage.
3: All right, now, I think that this actually explains why resource-dependent economies, whether it's counties or countries, grow slowly. What explains why resource-dependent economies suffer from low-life expectancy, poverty, Uh, Low education attainment. I think that it's reverse causality, that it's a statistical artifact. That, you know, what's the difference between Saudi Arabia and the United States? It's not oil production. We, We produce roughly equivalent quantities of oil. The difference between these two countries, Saudi Arabia and the United States, is non oil production. We produce $19 trillion worth of other stuff. The GDP of Saudi Arabia is roughly the size of Pennsylvania, right? And so in some sense, natural resources might provide the only sector that an economy can, can, uh, can rely on. It's the only surviving sector, right? So if an economy doesn't have a robust service sector, doesn't have a robust manufacturing sector, they're dependent upon the only thing they have. Right, So in this sense, it's the poverty, it's the bad institutions, it's the lack of education that's causing the dependence on oil or natural resources, not the other way around. So we need to be really careful with how we measure natural resources when we're trying to investigate whether or not a resource curse exists. And in light of some of these statistical issues, Economists have more recently used more sophisticated techniques to, to estimate the long-run effect of resource discoveries in production. Uh, so this is one example. Medexa, 2012, 2012, he estimates the long-run effects on GDP per capita, average income, for Norway. So this dotted line is what he predicts income in Norway would have been in the absence of oil production. This green line is actual income per capita in Norway. The difference between these two lines gives the so-called treatment effect. It's the effect on income per capita of of oil production. So we see big long-run gains for Norway. Um, Brock Smith, a a good friend of mine, he did the same type of analysis for a variety of countries, and he finds some mixed evidence, right? So Republic of the Congo and Botswana, Denmark, he estimates large, long-run income benefits of oil. But for Algeria, because remember, this is actual income per capita in Algeria. This is where he estimates it would have been in the absence of, of natural resources. He finds, he finds a different effect for that country. Um, within the United States, Jacobson and Parker look at the effect of being an oil-rich county before, during, and after the oil price boom in the late 70s and early 1980s. And so the key here is, if you look at this black line here, this is the effect of being an oil-rich county in each particular year, right? So in the late 1970s, when the oil price boomed, average income in oil-producing counties in the lower 48 boomed. And when the price came back down in the early 1980s, so did the average income level. But what's interesting here is that he finds that income doesn't return to where it would have been. It actually is less than where it would have been. So average income levels lower, they conclude, in the long run, as a result of the oil boom. They find similar results for the unemployment rate, that there's more unemployment in the long run as a result of this oil boom. This is a figure taken from a paper that has garnered some attention here in Alaska. Um, This is my estimate of what, Income in Alaska, average income per person would have looked like in the absence of discovery in Prudhoe Bay. So this solid line is actual income per capita in Alaska. And I want you to note something particular here, that when the pipeline was built, when it started in 74, income per capita boomed in Alaska. It was maybe 30% higher, 35% higher than it otherwise would have been. But then Alaska, we experienced zero or negative growth in income per capita for the next, like, 20 years, right? And eventually, my estimate of where Alaska would have been in the absence of Prudhoe Bay caught up to us. Or not me, I just got here, but uh, you guys. And, uh, and in fact, by, oopsie, by, um, by the late 1990s and early 2000s, I predict that actually average income level in Alaska might have been a little bit higher had we not discovered Prudhoe Bay, but by the mid to late 2000s, when oil prices came back up, we returned back to right about exactly where we probably would have been in terms of average income levels. All right. So to conclude this, this, this you know, bombardment of information, uh, is there a resource curse? Yes, sometimes it's not destiny though. And I don't think that that's the right question. That's not the right question that that, that Alaskans or other people should be asking. We should be asking, when is there a resource curse? And more broadly, what can we do to harness this short-run boom that's generated by a resource discovery and turn it into long-run growth and progress? That's it.
2: Thank you. Uh, Before we go to audience questions, I'll give you an easy one. Thank you. So you talk, it's not that easy. Uh, You know, you talked about volatility with with a resource-based economy. We've certainly seen that in Alaska. When oil prices are high and the money flows, we pig out on an endless list of stupid projects. And then... When all prices go down, we say, oh, my God, the world's falling. We've got to shut schools and stop paying troopers on the highway. So if you were a governor and, well, it's not open, but it'll be open again in four years. If you were a governor and you can't change the past, but you looked at it and said, okay, this is, how you've dealt with it so far, and you want to moderate that volatility, you want to make things stronger going ahead, what would you do in Alaska's case, and would an income tax be an option? And that I read that in one of your interviews as a way to sort of reduce that volatility and make it a better economy. So that's the question.
3: So if I was governor, I would start by saying, Alaska's greatest resources, its people. Oh jeez, uh, guy's running for office and, uh, already. Uh, and and while I wasn't born in Alaska, I got here as soon as I could. Yeah. Um, okay. but and children are our most important resource right, too, right. remember that. Um, so so the question was about volatility. What can we do to, 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 to minimize the volatility? So that there's a couple of things. I think the, the best thing to do is build a wealth fund that doesn't work just as a savings account, but works as a smoothing device, right? So you can imagine, and, and the devil's always in the details, I know, but you could imagine a situation where um, you know, the state of Alaska takes its, its $4 billion or $8 billion, whatever its budget is, uh, out of a pot of money, out of the fund. Uh, every year it takes $8 billion, no matter what oil price is doing. Um, that would help. Mm-hmm. Um, when the price of oil is $110 a barrel, uh, that fund would get bigger. When the price of oil is $53 a barrel, that fund would get smaller. But every year, the state government would spend the same amount of money. Uh, people in, in, at UAA wouldn't have to worry about geopolitical conflict, or, or lack thereof, um, for, um, you know, uh, for our budget. Um, and um, and then you, you also mentioned the, the income tax. So I think the income tax could help, but I think that there's actually, um, another benefit of an income tax. Um, In addition to potentially helping minimize volatility, you know, I think part of the problems that, uh, part part of the problem that resource-rich economies have is actually that they become, the governments become dependent on resource-based revenue, right? So it's not a coincidence that Alaska doesn't have a state income tax and Wyoming uh, and Texas. Right? These states don't have income taxes because they substituted that revenue using resource-based revenue. And there is a, a prominent theory in political scientists and, 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 and economics that actually taxation is necessary for there to be adequate democratic representation. Right, So if we're not paying the bills for the expenditures for government, well, the government doesn't um, feel obliged to do what we want. Uh, If we're not having our income taxed, then we don't pay attention maybe to what the government's doing or as much attention as we should. Um, And uh, so the the key here, part part of the story is that money is not fungible, right? It matters how you get it. So if the government takes my income and then says that they want to use it to build a gas pipeline, I might view that differently than if they take some of my oil money and use that to build a gas pipeline, right? Um, so, so I think that, that, there's, that there's broader uh, implications of instituted income tax beyond minimizing volatility that, that it could help politically and, and could help, something else you mentioned, You know, address the, uh, some of the, the arguably bad uh, policies that have been implemented in the past. here.
2: As your campaign advisor, I will tell you the income tax will not help you politically. <laughs> It may, but uh, one other quick question. So I'm I'm reading an interview with you and you talk about one of the problems in Alaska. We don't have a manufacturing sector, you know, you can't buy it, but we keep trying to buy a manufacturing sector. We keep trying to create industry. Are we alone or have other nations suffering under the same resource curse, if you will, as Alaska try to buy their way into manufacturing that's uneconomic?
3: So I'm not sure that we can buy our, our way into it. You know, it's possible that it just is something that needs to happen organically. Um, so that's an open question whether or not we could engineer that. I will say that we didn't have a manufacturing sector in Alaska before oil, and we don't really have one now. Um, but I don't know that that's the key for growth either. So the, the, the U.S. is not, um, you know, we produce a fraction of the manufacturing products that we used to. We've become much more of a service industry. Right, so I, th- I think the key for Alaska might be, in, um, might be in services, and less so in manufacturing.
2: Okay, that's enough for me. Questions from the audience.
4: Thank you. Um, as a fellow UAA professor, I, I <laughs> feel your pain when it comes to... Uh, I'm actually a professor of Japanese history, and uh, one of the things that I note is that when the leaders of Japan began the project of creating a modern Japanese state in 1868, one of the very first things they did was to figure out that basing the national budget on the fluctuating market price of a single commodity, in their case rice, was a really bad idea, and they should stop doing it. So.
3: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a step ahead of us.
4: Um, but one of the interesting aspects about this debate uh, has been, um, first of all, if it's not, one resource, it's another for Alaska. That is, you know, oil is not the only primary commodity uh, that we are inclined to extract. And indeed, Alaska's economy has kind of lived and died with various um, economies, uh, primary resources. But um, there is also kind of the famous notion that Alaskans don't necessarily care how they do it outside. I and I, th- how they Alaskans out. don't necessarily care how they do it outside. And I think one of the problems that we're having here is that the outside might not really care how we do it in Alaska. It's going to impose this on us anyway. So um, how, do we, how do you try and make that case that you know, this is not something that's really kind of up to us. This is kind of outside force majeure is going to actually require us to make some choices.
3: That's an example of a question I feared I would get. Um, I, I don't have a great answer for that. Though I, I don't know that I buy the premise that, it's, that we need an outside force. I think, I think that change will come when we decide. Again, not we, you guys really, but um, when Alaskans decide, decide to make a, make a change, make a shift. Um, and I suspect that that decision will be made when we're forced to. Um, which might not be too far in the future.
2: Right, we had talked about that before, that we may only make a change when we're forced to because we screwed it up so bad and the economy has so many problems.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm kind of curious on your your chart where you showed that Alaska might, income might have been better had we not had the resources. And I'm wondering if you've adjusted for population in that because if what you're talking about is per person income, we would have, that would have been affected dramatically by the fact that the completion of the oil pipeline and so on dramatically increased the size of the population of Alaska, whereas if we really never had that oil boom, the population probably would have been far more stagnant. So, statistically, isn't the the, the increase in the size of the population as big of a driver as the actual, uh, you know detriments that maybe occur through uh, expenditure of, of revenues?
3: Yeah. So, make sure everybody heard that okay. Um, the question was about the role of, of population and migration in the effect that that would have on uh, this figure here, my estimate of what income per capita would have been in the absence of, of Prudhoe Bay. And I'm glad you asked that. I didn't have time to go into details about this. But I think immigration is actually playing a key role in this figure, right? So, when I first got this estimate, I was surprised. As, as you guys know, I, 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 in my opening statement, I said, I'm a, I'm a resource curse skeptic. Um, I expected to find long-run economic benefits in Alaska. And when I didn't, I did what economists do. I thought about why I didn't get the result I, I, I thought I was going to get, and then I justify it and theorize about why I got that, right? So, But I actually think, in, in retrospect, uh, this is exactly the result I should have expected to get. Because what happened when, well, let me put it this way, what would we all do in this room if the wage rate in Seattle was a million dollars, uh, or say salaries were a million dollars a year? What would we all do? We'd all move to Seattle, right? And, and um, I'm, current, I'm right now teaching supply and demand to my students. If you increase the supply, that drives down the price, in this case, the price of labor. So when the, when, when the pipeline was built and when oil started to flow, average income levels in Alaska, and that attracted thousands of workers and thousands of people from around the country and around the world, not just people that were going to work in the, in the oil industry, but people that are going to provide a variety of services and things like this. So these people show up in Alaska, and then production starts to dwindle. But just like me, I predict that a lot of these people that came up here in the 70s uh, in, in search of, you know, maybe an Alaskan adventure and high income, they thought, oh, this place is sweet. There's you know, grizzly bears and salmon and, and glaciers for now. And, um, and they decided to stay. So we got this shrinking pie, but an artificially elevated population. And in fact, if I had found that the average income level remained elevated in the long run, that would have been the surprising result, because you would have scratched your head and thought, why didn't people show up until salaries or wage rates were equated across states, right? And, and, and so, I think another, another you know, important thing here is, so you're right, this is only average income level. So, if I pluck an average person, a random person off the street in Alaska, their income is probably about where it would have been had we not discovered oil. But we do have more people, I think, because of that. And there's a variety of benefits that come along with that, right? So I think the thing that I like so much about Alaska is that I can go fishing down on Bird Creek or go for a hike in Chugach, pronunciation, good. Uh, and then I can go to Hearth for dinner or go to Bubbly Mermaid for champagne, right? So we have an urban environment and, and we can go be a mountain man on the weekend or whatever. And, and the reason we can do both is because we have that population base. So there's agglomeration effects. There's more entertainment services and dining services, but there's also more flights. There's cheaper flights. There's more healthcare services, et cetera. And so there is a broader menu of potential benefits that oil has provided. Um, and, and I specifically and narrowly focused on the effect on average income.
0: This is Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's show is The Hidden Curse of Natural Resources, Economic Impacts at Home and Abroad, featuring Dr. Alexander James, Professor of Economics at the University of Alaska Anchorage. We'll pick back up with questions from the audience.
2: Okay, we got a question here in the corner.
0: You mentioned education, so I'm
2: curious if you can talk more about that and specifically... Uh, what you've learned about looking at the outcomes in Alaska, and maybe explain what your observations were.
3: Yeah. Okay, good question. So um, I mentioned earlier that, that resource-dependent economies have been um, linked to bad education outcomes. I haven't done Alaska-specific research on this topic. I plan to. I'm starting to, but but I don't have any results to share with you. Uh, But I am familiar with the literature, and I've done some research on the link between natural resources and education outcomes in the lower 48. And um, what I have found is that... uh, So, okay, so there's a supply side and a demand side of the education system. So the extraction of natural resources could affect one or the other or both. So think about on the demand side. If there's a a coal boom or or, or a gold rush and wages are are, uh, raised above what they used to be, what are some high school seniors going to do? They're going to take off. They're not going to graduate. They're going to go work. They're going to go dig up gold or work in the oil fields of the coal mine. And that's fine as long as they can accurately predict their ability to go back to school, right? So if they underestimate the likelihood of starting a family, getting a house, a car payment, Uh, they might not be able to go back to school once that resource is exhausted or once the mine closes. Um, So you could find yourself in the long run in a bad situation in in that context. And there's some good evidence that this happens in the the United States. So specifically in in Appalachia coal, uh, uh, coal region of of, uh, Appalachia, we find that during the coal boom of the 1970s, High school dropout rates rose, and then during the coal bust, high school dropout rates decreased. Right, so kind of an intuitive result. Now, uh, there's also the supply side, right? So across countries, natural resources have been argued to, um, uh, resource-rich countries have been have been argued to 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 underfund education, but a lot of that purported evidence, I think, is explained by some of the statistical issues I mentioned. Now, within the United States, there. There's, for a while, people believed that actually U.S. states spent very little on education, that that universities and K-12 schools were underfunded. Um, And I actually, um, my first year, uh, arriving up here at UAA, I was scratching my head thinking about this, because I had previously lived in Wyoming for five years, and I moved to Alaska, and I just thought, man, it seems like these places spend a lot on education, and yet... It appears, according to the literature, that, that these places that the education is underfunded. And what I found is that actually some of that research, um, you know, uh, was suffered from from a, from a couple of different problems. One was that one notable paper inadvertently examined only private education expenditures, not total or public education expenditures. And in fact, what I found is that private education uh, expenditures are, are you know 40% lower in in resource-rich states than compared to resource-poor ones, but public education expenditures is through the roof, right? And and the net effect is actually more education spending. So I think um, across U.S. states, and I would put Alaska in this category. Though again, I haven't specifically looked at Alaska data. Um, that education, a lot of money is spent on education, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but we still can't see these kind of temporary shocks um, where high school students might decide to forgo a college education or a high school diploma because of the opportunities provided by Natural Resources.
2: We've got a question in the far
0: back and then we'll get one up here. When you talked about uh, spending on education, is there any kind of, has there been any kind of analysis on the difference between education, public education spending and education outcomes? Are those related? Are they the same?
3: Uh, still being debated. So some, some studies find that, that more spending equals better quality. Some studies don't find that. Um, so more work needs to be done. Okay,
2: we got a question here and then I'll get that one next.
5: Um, so I have to bring up the obvious. So Alaska is an owner state and we have a permanent fund dividend. Um, could you speak a little bit more to I mean, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we have one of the s- smaller income inequality gaps of most states in the U.S., um, and so could you speak to how that plays into income levels as well as engagement? Because, we, you know, you did mention the income tax and, mm-hmm. and that sort of um, dynamic of people being engaged, but my understanding is the, the dividend was also supposed to be implemented for that purpose.
3: Yeah, that's, that's my understanding as well, that, that part of the role of the dividend is to get people engaged with what the government's doing, to, to uh, make sure they have skin in the game, and, 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 and taking a look at, at, at what's going on. Um, and then you also, so you, I think you, broadly your question is about the role of the dividend and specifically the effect that it has on maybe income inequality in the state. Yeah. So, so yeah, that includes the PFD, yeah. Um, does it
2: include the back pay we're going to get? <laughs>
3: n- no, it does not. Okay, and see, gotta work on those political yeah, answers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I, I, I don't know um, the, the, the the relationship between the PFD and, and and income inequality. My guess is that it helps to alleviate some income inequality. I think that you know, again, if I was governor um, and I was say Governor Walker, um, and I was in a you know, I, I, I've I've got revenues and I've got expenditures and I got to make these things these things match. I would have been inclined to, instead of cutting the PFD in half for everybody, um, because that's quite regressive, right? There there are people, especially people in rural parts of Alaska, that really depend on these dividend checks for for their way of life for survival, right? Um, And and so cutting that, I think, was was very painful for a lot of people. Um, It wasn't painful for faculty of CBPP, right? So um, some people were not happy about it, I'm sure. But, but I guess if I was governor, I would have tried to implement a, a cut for the top income earners, maybe, the, the wealthiest So half. a needs-based dividend. A ne- needs-based, That's yes, the so end of your testing. political career. Right. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so. so, so and, and, because, and I would support a policy like that because of, because of that, because of inequality and, and the uneven effect that it might have. See, we got one here, and then we'll get there next.
1: Do any of these models take into account whether the government is relatively corrupt and a lot of the money's being shaved off at the top, like Mexico, Venezuela, Nigeria,
3: yeah.
4: or it's Norway?
3: Yeah. So, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understood the question. I think it was the, the effect of political corruption on the growth performance of resource-rich economies? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, yeah, so there's been lots of work across countries on the role, uh, relationship between natural resource wealth and political corruption. And political corruption itself has been linked to a, to a wide variety of bad outcomes, including slow growth. So in the United States, political corruption has been also linked to things like more relaxed environmental regulations, uh, lower state bond ratings, and key slow economic growth. Now there has not been a lot of research done within the US states on the effect of resource wealth on political corruption. I'm currently working on that project. What I can say is that uh, what I have discovered so far is that um, if I look at states that have produced the most oil and gas from the late 70s to today, these states uh, suffer from political corruption. Uh, they're, they're they're they measured as convi- convictions of uh, of corruption by the federal Department of Justice, uh, and the leader is Alaska, uh, measured as 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 convictions of political corruption per worker or sorry per person or per government employee either way. Um, now that does not mean there's a correlation there. That does not mean that the natural resources are causing the corruption, right? Um, it could be that sparsely populated states uh, are more uh, likely to experience political corruption uh, because newspaper reporters live far away from the Capitol building, right It's possible. And if oil just happens to be located in sparsely populated states, then we would inadvertently blame oil for the political corruption but 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 I can say that you know we can have a debate about the causal effect. But I can say that the oil rich US states are are more politically corrupt. Uh, And that should have, according to theory and and empirical evidence, a deleterious effect on economic growth. So we
2: got one here and then we'll work our way across.
5: Thank you, I just wanna go back. You, You said that, if I understood you right, if you plucked any of us off the street and ask us what our income, or essentially, you're saying our income would be the same, or your estimate, Without oil, if you plucked us off the street today, is that what you said?
3: On average.
5: On average. I just beg to differ. I mean, where do you get that estimate of income? What's producing that income? Are we selling dog sled tours? Are we? Are we? Were we, are we getting that estimated income from selling trinkets to tourists or mm-hmm. fur or fishing? Mm-hmm. I mean, where's the income? What's what's the, what's supporting your estimate of income okay. besides oil? G-
3: great, great question. So the question was where. It, how, how, how could it possibly be that the average income level in Alaska today uh, would be equal to what it is uh, without oil? What would we have done to create that wealth? right? So part of that question gets back to one of the earlier questions, which is uh, the role of migration. Without oil, we wouldn't have so many people. And without so many people, we don't need as many jobs. Um, and, and so the key difference here is the difference between GDP or state GDP, and the GDP per person, right? Additionally, it's hard to imagine how the state would have evolved in the absence of oil, right? We, we just see today, or, or maybe, you know, Alaska with oil, and, and, and we think, yeah, it's not, it's just not possible that anything could have substituted for this. Um, but I beg to differ, uh, that, that it is possible that, that things would have substituted. Um, so, you know, just... For example, um, if um, I so I find that uh, the, the mi- miles of paved road in Alaska increased by 2,600 miles from 1960 to 1970. Right, so that's a decade before oil. Now, from 1970 to 1980, during this big oil boom and all this money's coming in, guess how much uh, miles of paved road increased by, about 2,600 miles, right? And so one possible explanation is that that oil money that's funding road construction may be substituted for what the federal government would have been paying. I don't know that, but this is an example of, of, of where the financing might have come from. Maybe that oil revenue is substituting for other things, including maybe federal dollars. Um, maybe we would have concentrated more on, you know, how do we capitalize on, tourism. Um, I'm not saying that we can substitute the oil sector today with with tourism, uh, but I think that there is a certain amount of complacency that comes with this free lunch, that that we're we're not forced to think hard about what are our our various other opportunities to, uh, to make money.
0: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's show is The Hidden Curse of Natural Resources, Economic Impacts at Home and Abroad, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. The featured speaker is Dr. Alexander James, professor of economics at the University of Alaska Anchorage. We'll continue with more questions from the audience.
2: Okay, we got a lot of people thinking with questions. We got one here, and then I'll go over here.
5: Hi. Thank you. Um, When I think about, uh, you're talking about the long-term effects of um, oil extraction, that makes me think of climate change. And when, um, yeah, in the case that uh, climate change is going to have a a very severe impact on our state before the oil runs out. So I was wondering, have you seen other countries or other states that have used their resource wealth to transition off of fossil fuels to renewable energy um, before all of their resources ran out?
3: So, so has an, an energy, uh, fossil fuel rich economy ever successfully switched off fossil fuels completely to renewables before the fo- before they're actually forced to do that? I I I, I don't know of, of an example for that. We do have a Nobel Prize winning environmental economist here tonight that might be better suited to answer that question, but. Um, I, I don't know what would be the good example of that. California is actually an incredibly fossil fuel rich state and it's moving in that direction. Um, Norway could be another um, example that gets close. Um, uh, the Dutch possibly, um, yeah, so. We're, we're a bit out of my wheelhouse here, but, but I think some, some, some economies have probably gotten closer, get, or getting closer. But it's not a great answer. Got a question here. So, so
4: one of the unique things about Alaska is that our, our two biggest, it seems to me, our two biggest resources are oil and fishing, and a, a large percentage of the workers are actually live out of state in both those industries. How does that impact? seems like it would just multiply what you're talking about.
3: So the, so, um... The energy industry employs a lot of people, a lot of non-Alaskans. A lot of non-Alaskans, effect. as
4: well as the, does the fishing industry.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, our two, our two biggest resources, yeah. I think. So I think one one of the big problems that resource-rich economies face, and, and that Alaska faces as well, is um, is is drainage, that that this money's being made, the rents are being made, and, and they're they're leaving state in part because we're employing people that live in in Oregon and they come up for the summer and they take their cash home. Right, um, so that is a problem, um, and I think it's reasonable to, to try to th- think hard about policies to address that. I, I don't have a, a great proposal um, other than income you know, tax, possibly an income tax. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, income tax, sales tax. There's also um, you know higher local laws that that could potentially be reasonable in this situation.
2: Okay. Got a question in the back here.
5: I'm wondering um, to what extent you looked at, I mean you're talking about average income increases um, as a result of oil revenues. I've been in Alaska just a year, but I used to work in Eastern Montana and I was there during the Balkan oil boom. So I've experienced firsthand some of the externalities of natural resource development. And I guess from personal experience and some of my reading, one of the things that I have uh, considered is not just at the personal level, but at the, at the government level, the unequal distribution of wealth that results from natural resource development. Mm. And so there's people that become millionaires overnight, um, and there's people that leave their jobs and go make a million dollars and retire in five years, and then there's the rest of us. Um, At the state level, I saw the same kinds of uneven distribution of wealth from oil revenues. So the state may take in revenues from royalties, but local governments absorb the externalities of uh, increased crime, no infrastructure development, no increase in property taxes. So I'm wondering to what degree you look at balancing the other externalities that um, have costs against average income um, for, from oil revenues and also whether there are better investment possibilities rather than distributing a PFD, for example, $2,000 to every individual, long-term investment in the state infrastructure that would help absorb the long-term impact when all of those migrating workers go home to Florida, Texas, whatever, when the boom stops. Yep. And the mess is left behind on local governments. So that, that's my question.
3: Okay, so uh, that was a lot. Um, so so well, I'll do my best to respond here. Maybe we can, we can talk more afterwards if I don't get to everything. But the, 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 the broadly speaking, the concern was about externalities associated with resource extraction. So, so there's a bunch of different externalities, right? So um, environmental degradation, air pollution, water pollution is one. Uh, it's gotten a lot of attention with, with fracking. Uh, down in the lower 48. Um, but there's there's other issues, right? So that increased uh, risk of water contamination has been shown to depress housing prices uh, down in the lower 48. Um, there's also been, uh, I've, I've written a study on the effect of the shale boom down the lower 48 on criminal activity, on, on, on crime. And uh, there's significant clear effects. Uh, and so and there's a, there's a direct cost associated with that criminal activity. I actually estimated it to be about two million dollars in the average um, shale-rich county. Uh, it's a small percentage of the total income gains, about two percent for the average place. Um, but it's one externality among many. And there's also long-run potentially long-run effects of this. Um, you know, if if you know somebody moves to North Dakota, I'm not really sure why they'd move to North Dakota, but but no offense, I'm just kidding. Uh, but somebody moves to North Dakota they did so not because uh, they don't want to live in the city they like that rural environment right uh, and the low crime rate and 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 when it's no longer safe when they have to start locking their doors when they're getting their their cars stolen they're going to they're going some of them are going to leave and which are the ones that are going to leave it's the people that can leave the the better off are going to leave it's the people that are going to leave are the ones that happened to own property above an oil field that, that, yeah, collected a $20,000 a month check and moved to Florida, right? And so again, talking about the the, the drainage of these rents and these benefits that are potentially offered to a resource-rich economy that are lost by not maybe adequately uh, taxing the extracting firm, not adequately taxing income, trying to get some of this revenue to stick locally. so, I, I, I think I agree. Um, but.
2: Can we keep it short? Questions? Because we got to end. Now. Sure.
5: Um, I wanted to go back to the slide where you show uh, that for one outcome, it, it's similar to what you projected over the long run. But there are other outcomes, obviously, uh, things like health outcomes, education, you mentioned you hadn't studied, transportation uh, maintaining rural way of life. Um, so I, I guess the way I think of the resource curse is it's more than just income. And I wanted you to comment on that. Thanks.
3: Agreed. (laughs) Um, agreed. And I, and I haven't done a broader analysis yet. I'm, I'm working on it, but you know, um, I'm only one member of a small department. Um, and, um, we're, we're working on, on these questions, and, and, um, and we will get to them. But, but I will say for now that the life expectancy rate in Alaska in 1960 was, I believe, 66. And the life expectancy for the average American was 67. And by 1980, the average life expectancy in Alaska was 70. And that for the United States was also 70. For, uh, for, this is for just for males, male life expectancy. Uh, I didn't have the data for females, sorry. Um, and, and so life expe- based off of that, it's not unreasonable th- to think that life expectancy was, might have been unaffected. Um, we could also look at poverty. So the poverty rate in Alaska in 1960 was a whopping 20%, 19 and a half maybe, but close to 20%. One out of five people in Alaska were living in poverty. In Mississippi in 1960, the poverty rate was closer to 50%. And in fact, half the country, half the states in the United States had a poverty rate in excess of 20% in 1960. From 1960 to 1970, the poverty rate in Alaska fell from 20% to 12%. And then from 1970 to 1980, the period of which oil was extracted, the poverty rate fell 2%. Um, and so I think some people will say, well, you know, Poverty alleviated. Poverty was alleviated because of oil. Um, you go back to 1960. You know, a large part of the United States was in poverty, living living in, in pretty poor conditions. Uh, and 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 we all, by and large we've all grown out of that poverty. But not all of us had oil. So a lot of places did it without the natural resources.
2: Okay, I've been told we've got to wrap this up. So. A very short question. You teach, in addition to doing research, right? Yeah. If the state of Alaska had been your student or was your student for the last 40 years, what grade would you give us for handling our resource wealth? Well? <laughs> and you've got to give us a grade. This is not a pass-fail class.
3: So grades are relative things. Uh, yeah,
2: for, for those of us who had them, they were relative, yeah. but you got to give us a grade. Um, is this the professor or the candidate thinking? Yeah, uh,
3: yeah. Uh, uh, I, uh, I'd actually do probably a, a, a B, B minus. I think the wealth fund was critical. That was awesome. Um, I actually think that, that the PFD is a, a good idea. Um, we have a really big state. If we take all of that oil revenue and we fund UAA with it, well, all the people living out in other parts of Alaska, that's more than two times the size of Texas, as we all know, um, they might not see a lot of those benefits. Um, and so I think we've done some things that were really good.
2: Hey, I can live with a B-minus.
0: Yeah.
3: Better than I ever had.
2: <laughs> the closing. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard The Hidden Curse of Natural Resources, Economic Impacts at Home and Abroad, featuring Dr. Alexander James, Professor of Economics at the University of Alaska Anchorage. This event was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council and was moderated by Larry Persley. It was recorded on January 24th at 49th State Brewing Company. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more like it, you can head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org.